Robin. Hi, Agnes. Um, so earlier when we were talking, not on the podcast, we were observing that we have somewhat different personae in our unrecorded conversations than our recorded ones. And in particular, that, well, this is my observation, so you can disagree, that I'm more... Uh, I'm more deferential to you, I think, um, in the recorded conversation than in real life. And you're a bit more didactic uh, in recorded conversation than in real life. So this is an experiment to try to make a recorded conversation that's more like real life. And so I thought we could do that by actually just trying to go over territory that we've already covered in our real life conversation. Um, uh, may or may not work. So uh, here's how this conversation started. I was telling you about an experience that I had when I was living in France where um, I would get into these situations where I had to ask for something and I um, uh, they wouldn't go well and I wouldn't get the thing I wanted, like getting access to a library. And uh, eventually I learned that what I was supposed to do was allow them to turn me down a couple of times, like three times, before they would then say yes. And I, they had actually even been sort of offended that I would take no and, for an answer and walk away. I was supposed to keep asking. So this was like a social norm. Okay, this is over 20 years ago, so maybe it's changed. But at least that I encountered repeatedly. And once I encountered it, it was like all my social interactions went way better because I knew that you just have to keep asking a couple times after they turn you down. All right. And your reply was that this is the sort of thing that should be taught. Right? Okay. Um, and, um, <laughs> I don't know, it's harder than I thought. You want to start over? No, let's not start over. Um, all right, step two. <laughs> um, step two was... I brought up this book that I admittedly have not read, but read about by Jason Brennan, in which he, in effect, tries to explain some of these tacit rules or norms, but not about living in France, but about academia and academic success to, um, you know, his readers, graduate students who want to make it in academia. And I said, it's actually puzzling to me why someone would take the trouble to make these rules explicit, to tell someone how to succeed in academia, when they were also explicitly acknowledging that they weren't sure, in fact, even suggesting that they, um, uh, that they didn't actually think the system was a good one. It's sort of like how to succeed in a bad system, right? Or in a system that I'm not necessarily endorsing. Maybe not bad, but I'm not looking at the question of whether the system is good or whether it should continue. I'm just telling you how to win in it. And I was saying, why would someone want to do that? Why would someone want to tell people how to win in a system that they uh, don't uh, endorse? And your thought was that this is important, at least in part, for egalitarian reasons. Right? Uh, in part, yes. Okay. So maybe let's start there. Why do you think it's important for egalitarian reasons to teach people how to succeed in a system that you otherwise might not endorse or you don't think is going well? Well, first, I, I'd say that all systems have like a whole range of good and bad elements. So there isn't good or bad systems. There are just systems on a spectrum from good to bad. So almost any realistic system will have some bad elements and some good ones. 
And so your advice will be a mixture of things that promote the good things and the bad things uh, in a system like that. But the scenario that I was concerned with was a scenario where uh, lower class people are taught in school some norms about how they should behave in work environments, including academic environments. And then upper class people are often taught the way things real work, really work. <laughs> and they're taught the actual strategies that will help them succeed. And this is one of the ways that upper classes perpetuate themselves is by knowing the actual rules of the game and explicitly teaching lower class people the wrong rules of the game as some general way to promote good behavior, but in fact, uh, you know, put them at a disadvantage. So that seems to me objectionable because, uh, you know, you're setting up a game and you're not only not telling people the rules of the game, you're telling them the wrong rules of the game <laughs> so that they would be at a disadvantage. That seems like most people would find that pretty objectionable. And in fact, uh, it will make the whole system more illegitimate as people become aware of it. And uh, that's in general not a good thing unless you actually want illegitimacy because you actually want momentum to overthrow a system. So, I mean, it, it definitely seems bad when you put it, when you imply an intent to deceive, right? Um, so, like, if I deliberately tell you things, um, false things, um, so as to, you know, manipulate you for my advantage, um, self-consciously do that, right? That seems immoral. Um, but you're not thinking that the people are doing it in that way, right? People aren't aware. Well, some of them are, this. but most of them may not be. I'm not um, sure how much it actually matters, but this is a common feature of sort of class-based systems where, in fact, upper classes have advantages and they play to their advantages and they do things that promote those advantages, but each person may or may not be very conscious of their role in that system. Right. So the thought is the system advantages some people over others. Um, now, I mean, suppose that you... Um, so I suppose, like, the question, say, if we go back to Jason Brennan's book, because my question was why someone would write such a book, a book that teaches you how to sort of more efficiently game a system that you yourself might not believe in. And so your answer was egalitarianism. So the thought would be, if you had some reason to believe that the readership of your book would not, like, actually reproduce the bias, so, like... That would be important, right? So, so if, for instance, you thought that it would be more like upper-class people who would have access to this book, you positively would want to silence the book and not have it come out, right? Because it would actually make make it worse on that on that view, right? So, your thought is, we're going to presuppose that the book is somehow going to transcend a lot of these like um, class divisions, and it's sort of magically going to be equally accessible to everyone, and so then it's going to um, make academia more egalitarian. It would be idea? more widely accessible. It more widely have to be, accessible. It wouldn't have to be perfectly equally accessible, but if it was more widely accessible, then that would help. Right, but so suppose you did like an empirical study on like who bought this book and stuff, and you found that actually it was disproportionately the people who were like most advantaged who bought the book. Right, in which case <laughs> my objection goes away. <laughs> Uh, I, I would have to retract the objection then. Right. So th that is, you would you would no longer, if you were going to say write such a book, you would no longer believe in writing such a book. Not right? for that reason. For that reason. Um, so the idea is that the book is supposed to right. sort of undo. Now, there's a, there is another reason that I we hadn't discussed before, mm. which is just that when you are trying to convince people to change a system for the better, first you have to convince them of the current nature of the system. <laughs> Mm -hmm. in all its realistic pieces so that you can say, look at this piece, that's bad, let's change it. 
And often people are in denial about the actual system they're in. And so a book like this could at least make it clearer what the actual system is and how it's working. So that then you it could would have then a different audience, right? So like, as I understood it, the audience of the book was like graduate students who want to succeed in academia. Um, uh, but then the audience would be people in a position to make changes, right? Though it could be, you know, that's that's the, would be the true audience in right. effect, but there would be a kind of, of pro like proxy or faux audience, which is like the young graduate student. And, and I think that in general, when we try to propose syst you know system changes, we do tend to just try to reach a wide audience of people who might be interested in the changes, and then try to create sort of a wider support for change, which then would eventually become concentrated in particular people who are especially able to change. But it's, you know, usually, usually the people who are especially able to change aren't interested in change unless there's much wider support for change. Right. I mean, so there's, in a way, there, there are sort of two opposite goals for the same book, which is interesting and puzzling in itself, right? One goal would be entrenching further the system that exists by making it more efficient, right? And the other goal would be revolution, uh, a new system. And so it's, it's itself puzzling that one and the same book could have those, both of those goals. I actually think those are what you should both typically be trying to do, yes. So uh, in many of my reform efforts, I am willing to make recommendations for small reforms minor reforms that will only make a small change and which would then improve, you know, whatever larger structures are existing and make, um, you know, people less eager to change them, perhaps. And I also want to propose larger changes. So I don't actually think that typically, you know, small improvements uh, prevent larger improvements. Okay, but I, I feel like... Um... I mean, in a way, I feel like I'm not getting at the kind of puzzlement, and it's very, it's a very abstract form of puzzlement that I have about um, sort of, and I, I guess I see this all over the internet too. It's not just in this book, right? There's this kind of generalized advice that people give, where they're giving someone advice, and they don't know who it's directed to, right? I mean, that is, it's, it's, it's open. Um, there and and it's advice about how, in some sense how to game the system, how not to be a fool, um, uh, how to in some sense get the advantage over others by knowing how things really work. And there's people who are motivated to give that sort of advice, and I find that motive very obscure. I, and I would understand giving that sort of advice to your child, right, or to your close friend. Um, like you want that person to succeed over other people for some specific reasons because you have some attachment to that person. That makes sense to me. But the idea that you want every, you have a, as a general desire to make any random person succeed over other people, that to me is like just mysterious. Are, are you puzzled by people wanting to be lawyers and representing particular clients or wanting to be job agents and representing particular clients who might be looking for jobs or represent uh, other particular students who might need tutoring or counseling, uh, these are all cases in which people advise particular clients for those particular clients' benefit, uh, but they're often paid and compensated. So if you think of the authors of these advice books as hoping for some form of compensation for their advice, then they would seem to be in the same class as these other sorts of advisors. 
So I think that um, one way to think about, say, a lawyer, especially a lawyer, maybe even something like a therapist um, or a mentor, is someone who is on your side or your ally in some vague sense, right? They're on your side and not on other people's side. Now, why are they on your side? Well, in some cases, you're paying them. In some cases, like with, you know, teachers, like maybe you just took a lot of their classes. I mean, they're not you know, paying. Our students that right. we mentor aren't paying us, right? They're paying to attend the school, but they're not paying to be the ones we mentor as opposed to the other students. So it's not always money. But in any case, there's some grounds why you have an allegiance to that person, right? And you're in some sense promoting them over other people. So as, you're, as a lawyer, you're promoting your client. Um, um, even as a therapist in some way, I think you have a kind of allegiance with your, um, your patient or your client as a uh, and as a teacher, right, as a mentor, you're giving your students advice how to succeed uh, uh, in the job market, et cetera. Um, but I am um, there, like, you know who it is you're trying to benefit over others. Um, and I, I, I am still puzzled by the idea of just trying to benefit um, in general. Like, okay, in the case of a book, you could say whoever is willing to buy my book, but um, but that's not selected out first. I mean, it's like... <laughs> but most lawyers don't select out their clients. You know, they, they are mostly willing to, you know, serve whoever offers to pay them. They, they make some judgments, perhaps, mm. about uh, some exceptions, but mostly that's true for most agents. If you were a literary agent, you would probably take on most clients, at least if they were within your specialty. Uh, I think, in general, we aren't very picky about who we're willing to help as advisors when we're paid advisors. Well, if you think about the case of, let's say, people giving this sort of advice just online, right, um, uh, on Twitter, say, right, right. So giving out some piece of advice about how to succeed in the academic job market or how to, I don't know, there's always advice about how you should work on weekends or you shouldn't work on weekends or, yeah, right, right, this is how you get ahead of other people. Uh, people are very liberal with this sort of, they're not requiring people to pay them. I mean, Jason Brennan wrote this book, right, right. so he's, I guess people pay him if they read his book, if they buy the book. Um but it, it, it seems to me that there is a more, um, that this kind of sentiment of um, teaching other people how to game a system, that's like a thing that people are inclined to do. Um, and, and I guess I feel like even with lawyers and teachers, that's not really what actually lawyers and teachers do. Like, they, they, that may be some small part of what they do as part of their lawyerly advice, right? That, um, um, but... Um, but in you know in the in the in the sort of Jason Brennan case, my understanding was like that's sort of that's sort of most of what it, what he was doing, and it's a lot of what you see on Twitter. So um, it it's sort of like it's one thing to say I want to benefit this person, and then teaching them how to game the system is some small part of benefiting them, right? And it's another thing to say no, I just want to teach people how to game the system. That's the only form of benefit I want to provide. Right? So those are two different sorts of motivations. And it's the second one. It's a kind of purism about I'll, t I'll, I'll, I'll teach anyone who wants to learn and what I will teach them is how to game the system. Um, where I don't know whether you're on the side of the system or against it. Like I, I sort of don't so, know what so you're doing. I, I want to push back against this binary distinction. Okay. So, so again, there's not just you know, perfect systems and terrible systems. All real systems are somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. And they're complicated. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, you know, it's more straightforward to figure out how to win than to figure out which 
strategies to win are socially beneficial or socially harmful in terms of an, on the net. And that's one of the things we try to teach and learn as economists is how to distinguish which local behaviors will be beneficial to the world and which local behaviors will be harmful to the world. And, uh, you know, we, we accept usually that uh, when people realize that behaviors that are harmful to the world are to their personal benefit, they will probably often continue with them. And if we can identify those particular behaviors, then we have a choice to make as advisors to the extent do we want to help them out with that if it's going to hurt the world. Of course, a wide range of you know, behaviors that they will do will sort of be pretty neutral and they're not obviously very helpful to the world or very hurtful. Um, but, you know, we could still want to have a role in the world. Uh, so first of all, we might say, well, I need to eat and I need a job and this is a job. People are willing to pay me to, to help in the financial sense, but in, you know, in the Twitter sense or whatever, people gain attention and respect from being able to say useful things to other people. So even if those useful things aren't, you know, helping the entire world. Um, so that all suggests that, um, you know, we can understand why people would give advice, especially when it's, it's just not clear, uh, right? So, you know, even in academia, I would say we, we could struggle to look at advice for academics and identify which of the advice is actually helping the world the most and which is hurting. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's somehow, maybe my puzzle is really about what you might call um, socially harmful advice, right? Where that advice is being given in a kind, in a kind of large scale, um, sort of indiscriminately, like that, 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 um, I mean, I, I'm actually even puzzled by it being given on an individual level. Um, if, if that's the sort of most of what you're doing. Um, but it's, it's like, um, what kind of love do you have for the generic person or something <laughs> such that you would give the socially harmful advice where you think you're harming the group, but your advice in some sense is directed in an open way at the group, right? So you're both on the side of and against the group. And that's sort of what I meant by saying that you're both, that it's somehow both in favor of and against the system. And that's just, there's something paradoxical about it. So you could think of yourself as part of many nested groups and then see yourself as more focused on favoring the, the groups closer to you, the smaller groups within this nesting, mm -hmm. and then maybe not so much at the world as a whole. So, for example, if you advise your military <laughs> about how to win wars, well, that may not help the world if your country isn't any better a you know, nation to, to rule the world than any other nation, right? Uh, so military advice is a classic sort of thing that people are wary of. So many people have said, how could you work for a military contractor, right? How could you dare work on weapons, right? And that's exactly this intuition. Well, there is no overall social benefit to weapons, they might say. Uh, there's just a, uh, you know, private benefit to one nation having better weapons compared to the others. Yeah, I think I would be exactly as puzzled about someone like going on Twitter and just telling the nations in, of the world how to have like better, stronger weapons. But if you like, told what are you your people, to? your people, then I understand. But that's so. That's what I mean. Is like, as I said, I understand someone giving their own student a certain kind of job market advice. Right. I at least understand that a little bit better. I, as I say, even there, it doesn't quite describe my experience. But the idea of just giving everyone this kind of socially harmful advice. That, that doesn't, it just doesn't make sense to me as a, like, psychological makeup or something. 
I mean, most everyone doesn't speak to everyone. <laughs> they speak to whoever will listen to them, and that is correlated with various kinds of associations. I mean, people say speak in a language, and that language will be people who share that language, and those aren't random people in the world. They will speak to people who've read them before and liked what they've said before. Uh, they will speak to people maybe in their discipline, not in other disciplines, uh, etc. Right? So, or maybe it really is just whoever will listen to me. It's like, for for whoever for being will listen to me, are my to, allies. Yes, yeah, whoever. Be, if you're willing to listen to me, then I want you to benefit because I want to raise the profile and the you know okay. uh, of of whoever it is who will listen to me, and so I'll give out generic advice. <laughs> That's a pretty cynical reason. So, so to me, the more interesting way to frame this question would be. Say you could identify ways in which the world is, you know, you know, in a bad equilibrium, such as with war. Mm -hmm. And then you could try to think about ways to get out of that bad equilibrium. Uh, you might think one of the ways to get out of the bad equilibrium is to sort of refuse to do things associated with the bad equilibrium. So, you might, so people have said, well, if nobody would go to war, then wars would end. So all we just have to do is get everybody in the world to be a pacifist, and then wars will end. And their strategy for ending war is each person being a pacifist. And we might ask ourselves, how effective do we think that strategy could be? and what other strategies are available. So that's how I would put your reaction here. I, I see you as basically saying, well, this isn't very helpful at avoiding this bad equilibrium. Yeah. And, but we have to put that up against, okay, what would be more helpful? And maybe redirect people's efforts towards something that would be more helpful. Maybe Jason Brennan didn't quite see the different book he could have written that would have been more helpful, and maybe we could help point that out to him. But that seems to be the more productive conversation here to have well what would be what would help more good i mean so we had uh, actually we, we talked about another example along these lines which is like book blurbs right so i'm sometimes asked to write a blurb for a book and at the moment at least until someone convinces me out of it i have a principle that i just don't write any blurbs for any books because i don't think someone should read a book because i said it was good my tastes are pretty like all over the place and i don't think it's actually a good basis for them to read the book that i like the book uh, so I think I would just be giving them bad advice by putting a blurb onto the book. And um, uh, and then you, you know, yeah, go ahead. You respond. I mean, you can say what you said. I mean, but do you think that that strategy of yours is doing much to end the book blurb equilibrium? Or is it just a principled stand-up? You know, I have a principle about not saying things I don't believe, for example, or saying things, pretending to be more useful than I am, and you're just invoking your principles and acting on them. Good. And so, like, I, it's definitely the case that I'm not doing it because I believe it has a likely causal role in ending the book blurb equilibrium, right? So if you just look into my psychology, that's what you'll find. You'll find, no, it's a principle. It's a moral <laughs> right. principle. I will not, right? right? Um, that's how it looks to me, okay, from the inside. But if you think about, like, the problem of what it's like to be in a bad equilibrium... Like, what it's like is that sort of all the incentives push you in the direction of promoting the equal... You know, there's like this Star Trek episode, okay? I haven't seen it in so long that I just only remember it very vaguely. But like, okay, here's my vague memory of it. Is that Spock is like in some kind of capsule thingy, and he's way off in space. And he has every reason to believe that there is nothing he can do that will like get him located by like the rest of the team. And he sends out like a signal of some kind... Um, and they and and sort of unbeknownst to him, <clears throat> they did have a way of detecting the signal, so he saved. And they ask him, "Why did you send out that signal? Like you shouldn't have thought that it could that 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 it could be received by us." And he's like, 
Well, when there's nothing rational to do, you have to do something <laughs> irrational. <laughs> That's how I remember it. I might be missing. Just try something. Okay. Um, yeah. So, and, and, and it's it's not just try something. It's oh, thanks. It's specifically like, you know, <laughs> try something, like as he put it, something irrational. Um, so you might think that what's happening, this is not how the person represents themselves. When you think what's happening is like you have these bad equilibria, right? How are they going to change? They're not going to change by people figuring out how to change them and then instituting those things if it's really a very stable equilibrium, right? Maybe the way they change is like a bunch of people do something that doesn't make any sense. And eventually enough people doing stuff that doesn't make sense makes it possible for people to make a change. But it, from inside the heads of those people, what they're doing shouldn't make any sense. Probably the things you might do to get out of bad equilibrium don't make sense from the point of view of just trying to win at the current equilibrium. Right. That doesn't mean that any random thing you might do <laughs> is going to be particularly effective at that. So, so you make those distinctions. So you know, I do think we'd want to just ask what does change equilibria and what are the plausible routes to changes and then ask which of these various behaviors would support that. Uh, that seems to be the, the right way to think about the question. So for example, uh, if you'd say war, how are we going to end war? Uh, you, you know, having enough people refuse to work for military contractors or refuse to be drafted in war doesn't seem to me very plausibly the way directly that wars would end. But, you know, presumably the first thing we need to do is get a lot of people to say and notice that a lot of people are unhappy with this equilibrium. So we need to create a common perception that in fact there's a problem, a problem that we would like to solve. So maybe just refusing to, to you know, go in the military, refusing to work with a contractor could add to that perception that there is a problem. Especially if you told other people about it. Which like is me why you're telling doing it. other yeah. people that right. I'm in this against right. the book blurbs. Exactly. So, it's better so, than just so doing it. Opting out of book blurbs could be a way to highlight to people, hey, this is about equilibrium, we need to do something. But once enough people are aware that there's a problem, then it's less clear that more people doing that really helps very much. Uh, although they might need to maintain the, the message, but then somebody needs to make the next step. So for his book blurb, say, we might want to say, well, what would be a better way for people to find out about the quality of a book? If we could institute some better system, maybe some website where people are, say, Goodreads or something, and where they're rating things, and we have the, a better weighting of the ratings that would be then you know, something that could go on books effectively. Maybe there's a, some way of putting an electronic tag on the, on the cover of a book that shows its current Goodreads ratings or something then that would be a, a new system. And then the people who refuse to write book blurbs or, or to have book blurbs on their own books, see, not even to write it for somebody else, they would be the people most pushing to try this new system. And the, the perception that a lot of people are unhappy would be part of the momentum that got people to try this new system and could help it grow and scale until it could be a replacement. And so, uh, but you want to have those other things be part of the process. So for example, I think enough people are aware that war is bad at the moment. <laughs> that refusing to work for a military contractor doesn't really help much with this message. We, we're all pretty aware, yeah, we'd like an alternative war. Now the next challenge is to have a concrete alternative offered that we could then lend our support to. Uh, but, but it's completely right that any world where people don't even realize that there's a problem, that uh, merely just opting out of an existing system in some visible way can help tell everybody there is a problem. So I think it's a really interesting question to ask 
how can we measure how aware we are of a problem so as to know that we're aware enough of it? You know, like a problem like racism or war or book blurbs, a smaller, <laughs> admittedly smaller problem, right? Um, what is the sufficient level of awareness? Um, because it seems like, so it seems like one way you might think about these things is that there's a division of labor, okay? There's the people whose job it is to stand there screaming, and then there's the people whose job it is to find a um, positive solution, right? And you are like saying, well, instead of just screaming about this, you could try to find a positive solution. And I'm like, well, maybe I'm one of the screaming ones, and you're one of the ones that finds the positive solution. And I got to keep screaming, and you've got to do the productive thing, right? And don't think that what I'm doing is getting in the way of what I'm what you're doing. What I'm doing is paving the way for what you're doing. But that doesn't mean you're going to convert me into your job, right? Because I'm doing my job. Now your thought is, well, maybe your job is being done by enough people already, right? And then the question is, well, okay, how do we know? Like, okay, we're all against war, but maybe the people who are employing military contractors are maybe the people who are not as much aware of like in a kind of visceral or direct way that like we shouldn't be having so much war maybe those are just exactly the right people to be protesting to as you might if you refuse to work for them so, I, it's at least hard for me to see so, so the protest voice or action uh, i think the often the biggest risk is that it's not willing to compromise and almost all real solutions will require compromise mm. so for example you might say the problem of global nuclear war is reduced by better monitoring of foreign nuclear weapons or launches or production processes and better communication channels like, the, say, the, the red phone. Uh, and so when people are in, in the military working out solutions to reduce the chance of war, other people have this absolute purest thing. Yeah, but you're working for a military. You're working for a military contractor. You are a military specialist. You are bad. And because they're, you know, they only see zero war or war as the options. And if you just scream and say, we want no war, then you are shutting down the people who could make the world better, even if not best. So there's this old thing, don't let the best be the enemy of the good. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, I think. <laughs> but equivalent, um, yes. It's not equivalent. <laughs> um, um, because the best might not be perfect. Okay. <laughs> um, um, uh, so, um, like, okay, but I think in a way what you have to do is ask yourself whether what you are asking of the protester is a reasonable demand given, so to speak, the job profile of the protester. So if we understand the protester is occupying a Spock-like role, what I mean there is Spock in that Star Trek thing where imagine that it's like this perfectly rational guy, right? right. And then he's got to see this occasion to be irrational, right? So the thought is like they're in a, they're in a bad equilibrium and they're, you know, they're going to take, so to speak, the irrational action of just screaming, right? And a big part of what they're doing is just telling you we got to get out of this equilibrium. But they have to even try to make, like, there are a lot of ways, even of screaming, that just feed into the equilibrium, right? I mean, really right. stable equilibria are going to incorporate the screaming, too. Exactly. Right? And so they're always, essentially what their, what their job description is, is being a wrench in the works, Right. And then you're like, hey, you guys are not compromising. You're not like, um, yep. you know, allowing us to go for a locally pretty good option. And this person could say to you, well, my, I'm the wrench in the works. Of course, I'm not compromising. You wanted you wanted someone to do this job, the anti-equilibrium job. And I'm trying to do it. And you're not going to flip me over to being a compromiser when it's convenient for you. I would say they're doing the wrong job then. <laughs> you <laughs> think there shouldn't the be job. such a job. 
the, the job should be to make people aware that the equilibrium they're in is not the best and to be aware of alternative equilibriums that might be feasible nearby that one could get to and then to push people to consider moving to those. And so it's counterproductive if you instead claim that there's this other equilibrium that's much, much better, much farther away, which requires a very different sort of protest. If you focus people's attention on this you know, pacifism, the end of war entirely, and you say that's the only goal and everything else is, is compromised and we reject it, then you actually get in the way of actual improvements. And I would say a similar thing might be true with, say, with socialism. <laughs> uh, people say, look, there's things they don't like about the current capitalist world. And instead of you know, making modest incremental improvements to the world, they just want a complete new world. But what's this new world they want? Well, they're not very clear exactly what it is, but they want it to be a lot of worker participation in... in um, in production processes and management. Uh, but existing places where they could have worker participation aren't good enough because, no, they need to overthrow everything, right? And if overthrowing everything actually wouldn't be very helpful or useful, then focusing people's attention on that is counterproductive. And I could go through many more examples, I think, of, of ways in which people complain about something, but in, an un, in a harmful way by focusing people's attention on an unrealistic, unachievable goal that wouldn't actually be better instead of looking at the actual range of options near what's happening and pushing people to move there. Right. So the, I think the way to think about um, it, it, such people is to think about people um, as um, looking at, let's say, increasingly... Um, distant sets of equilibria from where one sits, right? So there is, so to speak, the Jason Brennan position, which is you're right in the current moment and you're just like, let's just make this more efficient, right? So you're, you're focused on the current equilibrium and on just winning at that game. And then there's like, you're looking just a slight, what are, what, are, what are the tiniest modifications that we could make to the current system so that we end up in our like approximate equilibrium that we can actually make this change, we'll improve slightly, most of the bad things will still be there, right? Um, so that's like, that's like a second person, right? Um, um, we can call them like Jason Brennan star, right? They're slightly... <laughs> we should take um, Brennan out of this, but just okay. take it <laughs> Okay, so they're, they're slightly... Um, there's, you know, there's small incremental improvements, larger improvements. Larger improvements, right? And then radical, huge improvements. And then, and then there's like middle. Well, let's, let's even like keep going, right? right? So like there's going to be a whole range of people, right? Right. And then, then there's going to be people at the very extreme, right? So these people are like are the most, so to speak, anti-equilibrium, anti-the current equilibrium, yeah. right? They're, they're the radicals. They think we need something that's very far from the world that we live in. And they're going to be screaming a lot, right? And they're going to be unproductive. Um, it, because, like, in effect, everything they could do that would be productive would be counterproductive for their goal, which is to get out of the current equilibrium. Just like if you were, like, just one step removed from the current equilibrium, there's stuff that you would refuse to do that the person right at the center, who we're not going to call Jason Brennan anymore, <laughs> some fair, or whatever, who, you know, who's, who's very, who's, who, right. who's just trying to win at the status quo, that person is like, hey, why are you doing this counterproductive thing, right? And it's like, well, they're trying to shift over to a new equilibrium. So why shouldn't there just be, like, a range of 
people focused on a range of equilibria, and some of them should be focused out really far. So make a concrete physical metaphor. So imagine we are a tribe, you know, wandering from our previous camp to another camp far away, because this is we're, we're foragers from a hundred thousand years ago, and uh, we all want to be together on on a path. But the path we're going on, we can see, isn't the optimal path, and we'd like to get some other people on a different path. And so, you know. It, you could imagine a small variation on the path. Let's just walk on the left side of the stream instead of the right side of the stream. Or you can imagine, let's like, go over that hill yeah. or farther away. Yeah. And in those cases, uh, you know, I might say, well, we should just need to go to the south around this whole mountain range. Let's not even try to go over the mountain range. Yeah. That's just, and that's just a really big change, right? Yeah. And so if we all had just a very vivid, clear image of the whole landscape, then it would be a coordination issue. It would yeah. be about... You know, can we get enough of us to switch? Because we all want to go together to, you know, protect ourselves from predators. We don't want to each go separately. So we need other people to come with us. But if some of us say go over to the other side of the of the of the river, and say, you know, come over across the river here instead of down farther down where you were planning, then it'll be better because the side of the river is easier to walk on. We're coordinating that way. And then, you know, somebody says, no, we need to go all the way around the mountain. Then they might think, well, if enough of us can just go head off to the mountain, everybody else will realize, well, they need to be with us. And so they want to do that. And so in the case where we can all see the landscape clearly, the main issue would be coordination. Like, how big a group do we think we can get to go on each particular deviation? But in actual social changes, I'd say the landscape is not at all clear. And so people pushing for these huge changes usually don't understand the basic nature of what they're trying to do. And, and those things just are not feasible. There, there is no path around the south. The mountains go all the way. There, there is no path. There is no point where the mountains end. If you keep going south to try to go around them, it won't work because there is no path there. Right? That's more the key issue. And so you know, the closer people are to existing practice, the more well-informed their reform ideas will be about... <laughs> the actual landscape and the actual problems. And the farther away you go, the more risk they have of just being deluded about what's possible and what's doable. And this is where I feel somewhat stuck in the sense that because I've spent my lifetime studying many of these things, I think I do have ideas for big changes that would actually work. And we've discussed some of those before, and so I'm really excited to say, look, you know, I can show you if you'll listen, like, why this really big change should actually work and would let us have all these huge gains. Um, but, you know, you have to either listen to my arguments and have enough expertise to understand them or trust me or whoever's endorsing me that this could actually work. And maybe that's just not possible. <laughs> maybe there's nobody who, maybe not enough people could be convinced of my arguments or whoever would endorse me to make it possible that as long as, long as I legitimize radical changes, the radical changes are actually going to go for are going to be these crazy ones that don't work. And I'm causing a problem by even telling people to consider radical options. Right. So if we're, I mean, I think you're right that by and large, people, um, the people who are, have their eye on the radical change are gonna have a much weaker grip on the landscape, right? So as you go further away from where you are, your map more and more becomes more like fantasy, right, than an actual map of a place. Um, and so if you imagine people imagining an ideal world, you know, going back, like, say, Plato's Republic or something, and, like, what he thought an ideal world would look like, and then we're, you know, we, we don't, and in a whole bunch of different ways, we think that's not really an ideal world. And yet, like, you or know... Even the, a feasible world. <laughs> right, and not, also not feasible. Um, 
Um, some things about it turn out to be, though. Like, you know, there is a kind of, um, there's division of labor is a big part of right, the, yeah. um, the, the society in the Republic, and gender equality of a certain kind uh, on the grounds of division of labor. Um, so there's some aspects of it where he was saying stuff that would have been perceived as radical and crazy at the time, but were sort of dictated by a kind of utopianism that was like in large part fantasy, but um, still freed him up to have certain interesting thoughts, right? Um, but still, let's just grant that as you move away from that center point, the, 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 the map becomes more and more just kind of fantasy. Then I think that... Um, you know, now there's a question, okay, but do we want people who are fantasizing in those ways? Like, is that useful for our society, right? Um, and, um, and I think that um, it might be. Like, um, um, that is, there is, uh, you know, if you imagine that the, like, your, your knowledge and how informed you are, even about just a slightly, a slight variation in the equilibrium, um, is going to be less than if you just stay. Uh, at the current, like, status quo, right? You're good, you can understand how the status quo works really well. Even a slight shift, there's going to be stuff where you can't predict it. Um, so there's going to be a trade-off between how much you know, like how much your knowledge can allow you to predict what's going to happen, and um, sort of how much change you're going to allow into your story. And, like, if you want a huge amount of change, it's going to be go along with, like, just really having no clue what you're doing. Um, as long as the idealistic people don't actually think anyone's going to listen to them and don't think they're going to immediately have any that much of an effect, I'm not sure it's so bad. Like, that's often um, um, a criticism that's made of these idealistic people is, like, um, they, you know, they don't even, in some sense, they wouldn't even want people to create their world. And so, it's like, but that might be the, the advantage of it. So in general, when there are just many different roles and we have to grant that somebody should fill each role, then the real complaint would have to be about the percentage of people in each right. room. Okay. Right. So I'm happy to admit there ought to be some people who just have wild, fantastic visions of very dramatically different things, even if they're not very, very reliable. Uh, the, the thing I lament is that the thing I think is most useful hardly ever happens. So what we actually need is once you envision sort of a different world that you want, what you need to do is start with small-scale trials of your new world and to get people to actually try the small-scale versions and when you small, do a small trial and it works, then you do a slightly larger trial and see if that works, and you increasingly do more and more realistic, more and more consequential trials until eventually, if you continue to have success, then you could do the big thing you wanted to do. And so I see a lot of people who are very eager to just talk about how they want their big grand change, but they're not very eager and willing to participate in small-scale trials and certainly not to initiate them. And that would be the thing we most miss. In order to actually make big change, we need to just try lots of things on small scales, see what works, and then get people excited about the ones that work in order to copy them and you know, diffuse the innovation through copying of better trials. Yeah, so I think that um, maybe some part of the explanation of that is that the, f the function of these people at the edges is I think in like in large part it's a, almost like a kind of value placeholder, right? There are some things we are going to care about in the future. We don't care about them yet. We don't even know how to care about them yet, right? Like Plato bringing in like gender equality. He doesn't quite care about gender equality. That's not quite yeah. the right way to think about it. But you could sort of think of the Republic yeah. female guardians things almost like a placeholder, right? Um, 
So there's some things we don't know how to care about yet, and we might learn how to care about them in the future. And there are these people who are sort of almost like representing the possibility of caring about those things, but often in quite a confused way. Now, if instead you replace those people with sort of scientists like yourself, right, where it's like, well, look, let's take a totally determinate set of things that we already care about and just find, find a better way to bring those things about, then you're, 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 not, uh, you're just like not idealistic enough in the sense of people don't want don't want the big changes to be things that give them the things that they already want. They want the big changes to be um, things that give them the things they don't yet know that they want. So you're positing that a lot of idealistic um, fervor and advocating radical change is driven by a desire to change their values, not just to change the arrangement of the world to achieve the values they have now. Yes. I'm skeptical of that. <laughs> as being the dominant mode. That is, when people say they don't want war, mm -hmm. <laughs> pacifists, I don't think, are, are trying to change values as the main thing. They're appealing to our shared values to not want to die in wars. I agree that once upon a time in the past, cultures so much valorized and celebrated war that it was an effort to get people to realize you, you could have other values that a civilization could celebrate so, so that they could imagine being in a world with relatively low war and having that be satisfactory. But our world is well past that. I think most people today are plenty okay with a world that never happens, has war. We, we find other ways to celebrate ourselves, to, to find valor, to find glory. Uh, and so um, the, the main obstacle to war, you know, reducing war today, isn't the glory with which we celebrate war, but it's the actual arrangement in which we sometimes fall into war. But I mean, that was same for capitalism. Say, I would think, you know, in fact, it isn't some wrong values that are the causing the problems of capitalism that people are complaining about. Uh, it is, you know, the actual complicated details. Uh, so, for example, many people think bosses shouldn't be bosses; that nobody should boss anybody else, and therefore they refuse to become a boss, <laughs> and they boycott the idea of being a boss, which means they're not actually exploring better ways to be bosses. If you think bosses are just intrinsically a thing that's always going to be there, then what we need to do is find better ways to be bosses, not ending the existence of bosses. And so, of course, boycotting bossing is not helping. So, I mean, it's interesting, right, because those two examples are sort of related, like... That is, war is an attempt at physical domination, right? And the boss people are like, they don't like bosses because bosses dominate um, their employees. Of course, um, you know, um, boycotting is just, it's sort of an attempt at domination in a different way, right? Which is how to get a group of people together and then we can dominate through numbers. And I do really think that, like, human beings are... Um, trying to figure out and we're still trying to figure out like it's an it's an active research agenda um how not to dominate one another that's we are still working on that project and you're right that we've made some very significant progress in that like we don't positively glorify um war in the sense of like military action of one you know group on another uh, anywhere close to as much as we used to, like at least in, you know, in our country. I don't really know how it is in other countries. So maybe there's countries where they still do glorify to some degree, but I think you're right. 
in no country that I've ever visited and spoken to people ha have I noted the kind of glorification that I see in like ancient texts. So that seems right. So, and probably like you know, how do those changes happen? At least some people have to just like be doing certain kinds of boycotting, maybe for a very long time, right? Maybe there is no one person. Um, uh, and then also, um, you know, uh, economic situations have to sort of rearrange so as to make it a little bit more like profitable to not have the wars, right? Other ways to negotiate. Um, so, um, but you know, but there's there might be still some sort of like almost like holdouts being like, wait, we haven't solved this problem yet. We haven't learned how not to value domination. Um, we're still working on that one, and we still we still have. Um, like value learning to do so as to figure out how to not value because a lot of people do value bossing other people and they do deeply want that and they see it as good and they see it as glorious right and that's a deep there's a deep thing in our nature that the wanting to fight war spoke to so why not think like yeah that is something we're still striving to learn and we haven't learned it yet so again it's about the percentages <laughs> you know i'm going to grant that all possible roles should be filled with some percentage of people, I might complain that percentages are misallocated. So I think basically most everybody in our world wants to be sort of the activist preacher. <laughs> uh, and there's plenty of volunteers for the activist preacher role and a lot fewer people volunteering for the other necessary roles. And this, is, this is an observation people have made about like activist movements lately, <laughs> that in fact, uh, you know, lots of people want to sort of be the voice of the preacher, the ones who sort of you know, rallies everybody on some high values, and then all the, the other needed roles tend to be uh, not filled. Um, and that's a common observation about activism and, and you know, community organizations today. So, um, I mean, if, suppose this is a change. Like, suppose more people want to be activists today than at earlier times. Wouldn't that suggest that, like, well, maybe we're at a time that's especially ripe for a kind of big equilibrium shift, and that's what's pulling all these people in, so creating, in effect, a market for <laughs> activism, right? Um, and that's why all these people want to be activists. They're responding to that incentive, right? Um, um, wouldn't, wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't, if there were such a change, wouldn't you want to explain it that way? Well, if I thought there was an efficient market for activism. <laughs> but I, in fact, think that the market for activism is inefficient. It doesn't give people individual incentives to do the thing that's collectively in their best interest. I mean, there's also a question about how we measure this, right? It's like there are certain spaces you can go to where you'll find a lot of activism. If you go to Twitter, if you go to, you know, the New York Times, right, right opinion page. Um, uh, but, like... Uh, I, I don't feel as sure that in many other spaces there is so much activism. I'll make a stronger claim uh, so that you can refute it perhaps, <laughs> which is that people's primary motive in a lot of political discussions or activism or sort of reforms or discussions is to project their values. They, they want to say, I am a person with these values, and if you are someone who shares my values, then we can be teammates. And that's the main thing they are trying to do. And in fact... Once they achieve that, they don't pay that much attention to doing the other things that would actually help them achieve these further goals that they say they're trying to achieve. They are overwhelmingly focused on projecting values, you know, reading the values of other people, and aligning with people who share their values. That's, that's, the whole, that's pretty much mainly what they're doing. And so they neglect, for example, politicians 
Uh, when people vote for politicians, they mainly try to look to see whether they share their values. They don't care whether those values are going to be actionable. So, for example, people want the president who shares their values on education, even if in our country the president doesn't do much about education. And when you have, say, senators who are, say, really good behind the scenes and making deals and putting together coalitions, their voters don't actually care much about that and they don't reward them for it. They mainly reward them for the values they share. And this is a common feature that I see across, you know, activism, movies and other sorts of things. They are really into projecting values and communicating their values and they get really quickly fuzzy and you know, lose interest in the details. But the details are most everything uh, in terms of making things actually work and change. Right. So, you know, when we were talking before about the pacifist, um, the person who is making a statement by not working as a military contractor or me making the statement by not... Uh, writing the blurbs on books, we said that that's not going to be very effective unless the person does more stuff. Here's the more stuff you would expect them to do in order for that to be effective. First of all, you would want them to um, project it, right? So you would want them to um, publish or make you know, make public this thing where so that everybody knows. It wouldn't do anything right. if just privately you defect right. from the blurb or the army or whatever. You need to be right? a public pacifist. You, want, you, want to, you need to be public. You need to project your values. That's, so that's right. step one. And, and notice what it is a step of. It's a step of si a sign that they actually care about the causal efficacy rather than just the principle, right? Okay, step two, I suppose, would be that you look for allies, right? That is, you find other people who are also projecting that same thing because one person defecting from the blurbs right. is not enough, right. right? So, I mean, the fact that people are going through exactly the steps that you would predict they would go through if they wanted to disturb the equilibrium, namely taking the, in some sense, irrational action of defecting, but then publishing it and then seeking to find others who publish the same, uh, you know, defection. Um, isn't that just exact, like, isn't isn't that what it looks like to try to shift the equilibrium? Well, you listed two steps, but there's a dozen more after that, and you didn't list them. And my complaint is they don't do the rest of those steps. Mm. I mean, the difficulty, right, is that all the steps that come next are going to involve, um, as you would say, compromise. Um, um, another another way to put it would be something like um, a convergence on a proximate equilibrium that like doesn't get you everything that you want, right? Right. So maybe one issue here is that if you take um, this process. And you get the group of people that have bonded together over this, so to speak, anti-equilibrium stance. They, there's actually diversity in that group as to which of the many equilibria, better equilibria, they would settle on. And maybe it's hard for them to converge on anything but the most distant one. And so they have trouble working together. But why not consider my hypothesis that the main thing they care about is showing and sharing values and that... The rest of this is an excuse. They're not actually trying very hard to do the rest of the reform. So you're imagining that there's this social outcome they're trying to achieve and that all of these behaviors are, trying, are strategies to achieve that social outcome. But if we suggest that this is not an efficient market, we might say, what would be in each individual's interest in their social context? And I would say it seems pretty obvious that the main thing people are rewarded for socially in the activism world is the people they connect to and who associate with them on the basis of this shared 
cause. And they are achieving that. <laughs> Activists who are not effective at changing the world are effective at getting the people around them to perceive them as people who have certain values and to associate with them on that basis. I think there's a very, very deep, like, sort of disagreement that we have as to when an explanation has come to an end. And for me, it's like, uh, this is now an explanation of human behavior, right? Either at the individual or group scale. For me, the explanation, for me, when it has come to an end is when you have seen the good in it. And for you, I think it's come to an end when you've seen the bad in it. <laughs> and it's when so, I see the selfish gains that evolution would have produced. That is, if I assume fundamentally what's going on is evolution has created creatures who achieve evolution's ends of, of helping to reproduce their genes, then whenever I see behaviors I can explain in those terms, that is more of an end to me because that's the fundamental process I see. I see achieving the good as something that you know happens sometimes and sometimes not, depending on how well we can coordinate to achieve the good. But that's not the fundamental explanation of the world. That is, the world isn't a fundamentally a process that achieves the girl. good. The world is fundamentally a set of competing organisms <laughs> that uh, evolved to win their local evolutionary competitions. So, I mean, that theory itself instantiates the disagreement. I would just have a different read on evolution, as I did in our previous podcast on evolution. Namely, there are these motivations that, we've ha that we have that we've upcycled into other sorts of motivations, uh, imperfectly and incompletely, but we are continually working on the process of, so to speak, turning our base desires more and more but, into but, actual values. But, but, and the whole topic today has been... And here about the processes by which we try to coordinate to achieve better ends and it's how imperfect that is and how difficult it is and so certainly when we ask how is it that we fail to achieve the good by coordinating we shouldn't be positing some fundamental good process that makes us achieve the good as the reason why we're failing to achieve the good surely it must be the bad that's the reason <laughs> why we have failed to achieve the good <laughs> I, I guess I tend to think, no, even the reason why we fail to achieve the good, um, it's going to be something like incomplete awareness or understanding of the good. That is, um, ignorance of the good. You can call that the bad, but it's just the absence of something. It's a failure to understand I, I, something. I think I agree with that, but I think this is a good time to break for this conversation. Okay. Thank you, Agnes. <laughs>